Welcome to Because the Beatles, a podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to give us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond as we do. So this week in Beatles history is super packed. We're going to start from the very beginning. October 18th, 1957 was Paul McCartney's first performance with the Quarrymen at the New Club Moore Hall, Broadway in Liverpool. Paul and John met in July of 1957. And then October 18th was their very first gig together. One interesting thing during this show was that Paul McCartney, the consummate showman, he had first night nerves that made him really screw up his solo. As Paul says in the anthology, for my first gig, I was given a solo on Guitar Boogie. I could play it easily in rehearsal, so they elected that I should do it as my solo. Things were going fine, but when the moment came in the performance, I got sticky fingers. I thought, what am I doing here? I was just too frightened. It was too big of a moment with everyone looking at the guitar player. I couldn't do it. That's why George was brought in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, George can thank Paul for screwing that up royally. Yes. The promoter of the gig wasn't super happy either. He made a note about the quarrymen that they were good and bad. Good and bad on their... uh, what they call a visiting card, which is sort of like just a little notebook or something that promoters would have to, to jog their memory about certain acts. Thanks Paul. Thanks a lot. Thanks Paul. Screwed that one up. That's probably the only time that ever happened to him. I can imagine that though. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. The quarryman, his new mate, John, who I'm sure he wanted to impress. Oh, for sure. And he was a young kid. Yeah. Almost two years younger than John, which at that time, that's a big deal. It's a big gap. But flash forward to 1961, October 28th to be exact. So they say, that is the date that is given for when Raymond Jones walked into NEMS on Whitechapel Street in Liverpool and uh, asked Brian or Alistair Taylor or whoever, you know, whichever version of the story you believe, to find the single My Bonnie by the Beat Brothers, uh, really by Tony Sheridan. And uh, the rest is history that led Brian to discover the Beatles at the Cavern. So they say, we talk at length about this in our Brian Epstein episode, which I think is episode four. Four, yes. um, our, our episode. Uh, we talk a lot about the Raymond Jones legend, whether it's true or not, um, both sides of the story. But, you know, if you believe it, this is the anniversary of it actually happening. There's a guy called Raymond Jones, and we posted his picture on our Instagram. So you can check that out, too. And there's an interview with him from about 2010 where he goes through the story. We talk about this on our episode, but I think it's interesting. He claims he had, you know, like a... Brian sent him a signed copy of his book with a letter saying thank you, but both of them had been lost. And uh, I think that's pretty suspicious. But, you know, Raymond Jones, very interesting character in the Beatles history. Yeah. Another Brian news, October 17th, 1967, was Brian's memorial service at the New London Synagogue on Abbey Road. All four Beatles were in attendance. They didn't attend his funeral in Liverpool that previous August, but they were there that night along with other NEMS artists, including Stella Black, Jerry Marsden, The Foremost, and Billy J. Kramer. One thing I really liked about this service is that the rabbi, Louis Jacobs, who was officiating, said this really beautiful line. He praised Brian for, quote unquote, encouraging young people to sing of love and peace rather than war and hatred, which is really sweet. That is lovely. That is lovely. Very lovely. As opposed to the idiot 
rabbi, jerk of all jerks, to quote Paul McCartney to steal that, who shall not be named, who officiated <laughs> Brian's funeral in Liverpool and called him, quote unquote, a symbol of the malaise of our generation. That's so horrible. I would never want somebody to say that to, about me at my funeral. That is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Malaise? Malaise? Brian? I know. I just pictured this rabbi with like, you know, those horn room glasses, like like a dad in Footloose or something, just being like, oh, Brian Epstein promoted the devil's music. I'm sorry, didn't somebody vet this guy before letting him speak in public on behalf of Brian? What if he like turned in another like eulogy and then he whipped out this new one where he's like, Brian Epstein, like, you know, malaise of our generation, promoter of devil music and homosexual. I don't know. I feel like he <laughs> must have. I mean, Queenie must have had some kind of sign off power. Oh, man. This. Queenie probably gave him a piece of her mind. I hope. Mm-hmm. Like, how dare he? How dare he? Come on. So it sounds like his memorial service was a much more pleasant and accurate affair. At New London Synagogue. Yes. Yeah. With his artists in attendance. And a year later, as we know, the Beatles went into the recording studio to record the White Album, which is now being re-released, which is wonderful. And on October 16th, 1968, the Beatles had their first and only 24-hour recording session for White Album tracks. Yes, they didn't really record anything. They had done that already, but they were working on mixing, crossfading, putting the tracks in order. It was John and Paul with George Martin and engineer Ken Scott George and Ringo suspiciously absent from this session. Yep. Ringo had had a scheduled vacation about a week before, so it was kind of known. George, on the other hand, his disappearance seems a little bit less planned and maybe more calculated. The session on October 16th started at 5 p.m. According to Mark Lewis and George left for Los Angeles in the daytime hours. I don't know what that means, but I would assume before 5 p.m. that day for a little holiday. So I I wonder if George could see the writing on the wall and is like, okay, well, you guys take care of all this, you know, these final touches, you finish up the album. I'm just gonna go to LA. Bye. Yeah, and it's probably less of George just being like, I don't want to do it. And more about, okay, so I'm gonna watch Paul argue with everybody about what he wants to do. And it's gonna take hours and hours. And George Martin's gonna be arguing back and John's not gonna care. And this is a shit show. I'm gonna go. Yeah, he might have actually been smart to do that. (laughs) Probably, probably. So during the session, they use all three main studios in my studios. And for Studio 2, which is traditionally what the Beatles use for most of their recordings there, um, they only use the control room to kind of get things in order. Interestingly, Not Guilty, one of George's songs, uh, not a final contender for the White Album. They didn't even do a stereo mix of it. You know, I wonder if George was a little upset when he came back and was like, what the hell, guys? Well, that was during the time when he was getting more and more angry about the way that they kind of delegated him to the back row. But, you know, he did leave when they were having a 24-hour recording session. So who knows? Maybe it was on the list to get mixed. And then they were like, well, he didn't show up. So, okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. So that went from, like we said, 5 p.m. on October 16th to 5 p.m. on October 17th. The next day, October 18th in 1968, John and Yoko arrested for drugs possession. Uh Uh-oh. So maybe one of our listeners can tell us, because we are just, like, not cool enough, I guess, to know. But they were, the police discovered 219 grains of cannabis resin in John Yoko's flat in Montague Street. And it's actually Ringo's flat, but they were staying there. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what a grain is. Like, is it a mm. seed? Like, I don't I don't know. It's funny because they had gotten a tip off from Pete Shotton, 
John's BFF from Liverpool from art college. And I didn't know this, but Pete Shotton became a cop. So Pete Shotton tipped him off. Yeah. Pete Shotton was like, he came to the flat before the police did and was like, dude, John, Yoko, they're going to come search your flat. So we need to get rid of all your drug shit. And so they went room by room and like cleared out all the drugs, but they missed like, I think there was some like hash or something in like a camera case. So Pete also helped them like sweep up with a vacuum and he left and he took the vacuum bag with him. That's a pal. That's <laughs> yeah. a pal. That's like a tried and true lifelong friend. Seriously. Seriously. <laughs> and if he left and took the vacuum bag with him, he probably opened the vacuum bag when he got home too. Just saying. Right. He's yeah. like, sweet, yeah. sweet. Uh, so that's funny. And, um, you know, of course, they were on the front cover of the papers. The photographers were right there when they got arrested. Very famous day for the Beatles history. And this is one in a string of rock star arrests. Of course, the Stones got arrested as well. The police were kind of uh, hungry for blood in the rock and roll community. 11 years later, Paul McCartney received a unique award. He received a, he was awarded a Rhodium record by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most successful musician of the century. Interesting. I wonder what John Lennon thought. He's probably like, what the fuck? It's interesting that in, you would do that in 1979. I feel like you would do that in, you know, 1999. Yeah, because if you consider he'd only been around you know, not even for 20 years, if you go by, you know, the break of Beatlemania in the UK, which would be 63. Also, Paul was not really at his peak in 79. You know, he wasn't, in my opinion, coming out with the best music at that point, you know, Wings had kind of split up or was on the verge of splitting up at that point. They must have done by album sales, but I can't imagine that his Wings sales would have pushed him to that higher plane well he had banned on the run he had done the tour and the album had come out and then that version of maybe i'm amazed became a huge single so it's possible that those kind of things combined with his work on the beatles had had made him um, the most successful musician it'd be interesting to see exactly how they calculate something like that because obviously they included his Beatles output. And obviously, if you're including his Beatles output, it's not 100% Paul McCartney. Right. Totally. And it's hard to believe he was individualized like that. Like, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what about like Elvis? Elvis had just died, you know, two years before that. And not that Elvis had done anything significant, you know, in the past decade, almost. But he certainly, if you're going to go by individuals, he would be a contender, I would think. Or even Cliff Richard in the UK. I guess it has to do with his Beatles output plus what he did afterwards. Interesting. Because John wasn't quite as prolific and he didn't have the string of hits the same way that Paul did. So maybe John was the number two? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because, you know, obviously John was on his hiatus at that point. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just seems a little premature to call Paul the musician of the century, but... You know, good for Paul. Congrats on your rhodium record, buddy. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So from there, we move into current news. We've got a lot, a lot going on in the Beatles world. A lot. How is there so much going on? I know. It's so funny. Last night I was looking at rollingstone.com just to see what was up. And I looked at the top five trending stories and I was shocked to see there were no Beatles stories in the top five. Cause I'm like, what the hell? Like, I'm just so used to now seeing the Beatles, like even in my, my news on my iPhone every day, it's like Beatles this. And it's like, what year is it? It's amazing. Seriously. <laughs> so first off, Sgt. Pepper named Britain's favorite album of all time. Very cool. They tallied that based on album sales, streams, and downloads. 
and Sgt. Pepper has 5.34 million combined sales. It beat out Adele's 21, which is another amazing album that's in second place. Uh, third place is Oasis's What's the Story, Morning Glory, and mm. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and Michael Jackson's Thriller were in places four and five. That's a good top five. Yeah, it's a nice, solid British top five. Glad to see MJ representing the colonies uh, with Thriller. But yeah, I mean, these are all very respectable, respectable albums. Um, I'm, I'm surprised to see Adele so high. Uh, just because her album's kind of more recent. As far as streams and downloads, she probably really got put over the top for that. For sure. I mean, it's nice to see that too, because there really isn't anybody from the last 10 years represented. I mean, that Oasis album was, what, 1992, I think? Something like that. And speaking of downloads, there was an article that came out in Refinery29 about Taylor Swift versus the Beatles a decade after Spotify's launch, who has more streams. This is kind of ridiculous, but we're going to talk about it. Um, Swift beat out the Beatles by a large margin. Why that is? uh, Well, let's see. So there was a period of time where Taylor Swift did not have her music on Spotify. She pulled it off to protest the the royalty rate paid to artists, among a bunch of other stuff. Um, Most of the music industry just thought it was a PR stunt, which pretty much was. And the Beatles obviously weren't on Spotify for a long, long time. And they just entered the market a few years ago. So to compare the two, it's kind of difficult because there's really no basis for, you know, a time period where they were both sort of moving and shaking on Spotify until recently. So I don't know. I What do you think about this, Erica? Because I just, I don't, I think it's comparing apples and oranges a little bit. I think it's hard to compare a 50-year-old band with an artist that just came on Spotify a few years ago. I mean, if you are a Beatles fan and you're somebody who streams music, you may not stream the Beatles there because you may have all of those those albums from before. I mean, the number yeah. of times that the, that the Beatles have put out re-released versions of this or of that, and, and 2009 was huge because they re-released the entire catalog. But it wasn't available on anything streaming and you had to buy it. You had to buy it on iTunes or you had to buy a physical copy. So you had those there. And if you're going to put them in your playlist, you put them in from there. So maybe you're not thinking about the Beatles as much when you are listening to, when you choose Spotify. You're choosing, you know, you're choosing Spotify for different reasons. I think it's interesting to compare. I don't really understand why they sort of plucked out these two artists to compare, especially when they both were not on the platform for the whole 10 years. And by the way, I can't believe Spotify is 10 years old now. Oh my God. Um, yeah. But again, it's, it's hard because if Taylor Swift and the Beatles have both been on there since day one, it might be more of a fair comparison, but I don't know. It's just, you can't really compare artists with that kind of track record on the platform. I don't think. That would have been a more interesting and, and valid comparison if they found two artists that we know of as popular who have been on since the beginning. I think a lot of this is somebody trying to say, I want to find a way to beat the Beatles record in XYZ. So I'm going to cherry pick these statistics and I found a way to say it. Yeah, I think you might be right on that one. In more serious news... <laughs> Very, very serious. We have found out something um, pretty sad, pretty sad for, for Ringo. Uh, it turns out he missed out on all of the circle jerk activity and mm. he told the news about it this uh, last past week. So, yeah, uh, sorry, he uh, he came too late. Rimshot. We need a rimshot sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, Ringo, you're a little bit of a late camera to that party. <clears throat> The fact that people are questioning him about this, like as he leaves buildings and stuff, that that's probably the best part about it. I know. I love it. It's uh, This is the gift that keeps on giving right now for some reason. Uh, 
Well, something else that's really exciting, and I want to fly to Liverpool for so many reasons right now, but this is like numero uno. Um, there's a new Beatles-themed escape room in Liverpool. Have you ever done an escape room, Erica? No, I haven't. No, I really uh-huh. want to do one. I've never done one either, but this one is Escape Yellow Submarine, like the Yellow Submarine. And you have 50 minutes to figure out um, how to get out of this room, which is like a yellow submarine control room before the Blue Meanies come and attack. And it's all done by Beatles trivia, like answering Beatles trivia, solving puzzles, that kind of thing. I'm like, I feel like I could get it out of there in 15 minutes. I would kill it. Just saying. I know. I'm like, I really, really want to try this because I feel like if you and I were a team, because you could do a team of two, we would get out of there in 30 seconds. Oh my God. I would die. Top. It sounds amazing. This company, I'm sure it's good because they also created the popular Department of Magic Escape Room in Edinburgh, which is based on Harry Potter type of things. So I've heard that's really, really fun. So, Oh my gosh. I want to do all these. Yeah, I don't really want to do like you're trapped in a horror basement or something. I want to do you're trapped in a yellow submarine and you have to answer Beatles trivia. That's my speed of the escape room. Yeah, especially in Liverpool. It's like, yeah, let me just dominate this real quick. Really? And if I lose and I'm like stuck in some kind of Beatles room for the rest of my life? Okay. All right. Yep. That's fine. Lock me in. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, And speaking of Liverpool, some news this week about Matthew Street. And as you probably know, Matthew Street is the street the cavern was on and really kind of the epicenter of the Beatles when they lived there and they were coming up. And today it still has the cavern, not the original cavern, but it has the cavern club and the cavern pub across the way. And it has the grapes, which is a pub where they used to go drinking and all this great stuff. A really cool street that's been well-preserved for the most part. Which is why I was shocked to read they're hiring a team to, quote unquote, reimagine Matthew Street. And that sounds like hell on earth. But the good news is this is a team that has done a lot of redevelopment elsewhere in the city. They they kind of took over places by the Anfield Stadium to reinvigorate it. So it doesn't sound like they're going to really change Matthew Street that much. They're going to make better use of it. Some of the buildings there are kind of vacant. It is. It does feel a little hollow as you walk down it, which is fine. I think that's the way it should kind of feel. But they're going to rejig it so it makes more sense and there's more activity during the day and there's more to do and they're going to revitalize some old buildings. Hopefully that doesn't mean tearing them down, but we'll yeah. see. Um, I just personally hope they get rid of that creepy sculpture that's like the Virgin Mary holding like a John Lennon baby because yeah. don't like that one. That one's weird. Gross. Yeah, but I think they're going to also try to figure out better ways to pay tribute to the history of Matthew Street. Um, So we'll see what happens. But we talked about a few podcasts ago about Rogue Best, who just opened the new Beatles Museum on Matthew Street. So hopefully, you know, that's there to stay. That'd be good. It's a good start. I hope that they're really going to stay true to the history of the place and not Disneyfy it. It's already kind of Disneyfied, but it doesn't need to get any more so. No, we don't need any more shops where you can just buy, you know, meaningless tchotchkes. If they want to revitalize and restore some of the places where the Beatles hung out, like they want to make those more authentic and and make them last longer, that sounds great. If they want to add some kind of commercial aspect that's not quite there right now, that does not sound great to me. I've always been a strong opponent of gentrification. So as long as it's not anything like that, which I think... I would hope that whoever is in charge of this is taking really a lot of care and making these decisions. But I guess time will tell. I'm sure we won't see any major changes for a few years. I'm sure that if there's anything crazy that happens, there will be some kind of citizen group that will also rail against it. We'll hear all about it. 100%, for sure. 
Okay, next, uh, we're moving to The Week in Paul, which is a usual column for us now because Paul <laughs> yes. never stops going. Paul McCartney has a new interview on iHeartRadio's Inside the Studio. Um, he talks about his influences. He talks about Egypt Station. It's a nice interview that doesn't talk about you know anything disgusting. Uh. <laughs> See, three stories ago. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But it's nice. It kind of talks, it's kind of Paul talking about his everyday life right now, which I always like hearing him say that rather than, you know, it's it's less of the stories that he kind of brings out every time someone asks him a question. It's a little bit more casual. So a lot of fun. Also in uh, Paul McCartney news, this week he has announced that there are going to be reissues of Wings Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway out on December 7th. So the same reissue treatment that he's had with many of his other solo albums that come with collectible books and art and multi-CDs and outtakes and all kinds of things. You can see the track list for both of these albums, which are at least three CDs and a bonus DVD for each of them. One of them has actually two bonus DVDs and a, a bonus Blu-ray. So you, you get a lot. You get a lot from these things. And you can get the set for the low, low price of $399. Paul, I love you. I love you to pieces. <laughs> but I'm not buying a copy of Wings Wildlife for that much money. I'm sorry. Here's some timely, timely shit. We did a poll on our Insta story. And we asked our followers on our Insta story if they were going to, if they were planning to buy the new McCartney Archives releases. 61% of our followers said yes, and 39% said no. The verdict's kind of out. I think probably most of us will cave and get them. They do look like great releases, just kind of kind of expensive. This is a tough one. I mean, Wildlife was the first Wings album. It has a few, you know, really nice songs on it. Like the song Wildlife itself is nice. Dear Friend is nice. Some People Never Know is great. Bip Bop. <laughs> Selling point right there. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a very... Um, Number one wing song, Bip Bop. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> Red Rose Speedway, I think, is, is a bit more... It's a bit more of a robust album. My Love, Big Barn Bed, um, Single Pitch, and When the Night It Loves. I love When the Night. Um, mm -hmm. So good. Won't discuss Loop First Indian on the Moon. Just not going to go there. Yeah, let's not. Let's not do... Good old Dupe. But the, th uh, the thing about yeah. these things are that they're really cool for historical purposes. The books are great. There's so many unreleased photos and stories. Sometimes it looks like these will come with like facsimiles of handwritten notes and drawings that he did around when he was, you know, producing the album, when he was creating it. So you buy, I think, these things for those yeah. features. For me, it's like kind of the goodies to sell it. I love a good pack of like photo reproductions or buttons or stickers or like whatever was in the original packaging or you know just anything that kind of came out around then I think that's really exciting and speaking of new albums coming out the white album is now kind of leaking here and there so if you don't have a copy of it you can find it and one place to find it is on BBC Six that did a three hour listening party hosted by Martin Freeman mm. Darling, darling, Martin. Love him so Freeman. much. Marry me, Martin. He's, he's a mod. He's a, you know that, right? He's he identifies as a mod. Does like he? he? Motown. Yes. 
Aww. He does. And he is joined by other lovely British men like John Sims to discuss stories and listen to the double album together, as well as some of the outtakes of it. It is three hours. You have about three weeks left to listen to it if you go to the BBC Six site. So if you're jonesing for the White Album and you haven't found a copy yet, this is where you can find it. Okay, just one side note, though, on this. Don't you love it when your favorite British celebrities are also huge Beatle fans? Yes. David Tennant is my favorite ever of everything, and he is a monster Beatles fan. He has so many Beatles t-shirts. Somebody made like a mosaic montage of him in interviews just wearing different Beatles t-shirts. Like He's obsessed. That sweet baby. I love him. When he was the doctor, he said that if he was actually the doctor and he could have time traveled anywhere, he would have gone back to the Captain Club. Oh, my God. Yeah. I love him so much. I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan, but I love Broadchurch. I think we talked about this last time. Yeah, we did. <laughs> this is a, still a Broadchurch podcast, so. Yeah, I'm slowly bringing this into David Tennant. Every week is going to be a little more. That's okay. I'm fine with that. David Tennant is the best. I started watching um, his new series on HBO, Camping. I haven't seen Amazing. it yet. I haven't seen and he it does yet. a great American accent. He does. Note. He does. He does. Yeah. yeah. David Tennant, perfect human. Definitely. Uh, Martin Freeman also, although here Martin Freeman is kind of salty, but you know, we love salty men. We love George Harrison. Cool. Um, and more white album news rolling out. It's very exciting. There will be a white album international symposium, which is going to be great. Yeah. November 8th through 11th at Monmouth university, Monmouth, New Jersey, uh, sponsored by the Bruce Springsteen archives and center for American music at Monmouth university. This particular symposium, which is just a fancy word for lots of presentations and talks and listening sessions for the White Album, and it's all centered around the White Album, obviously, uh, conceived by and hosted by this week's guest, who's going to be here in a few minutes, Monmouth University Social Sciences Dean and noted Beatles author Ken Womack. We'll tell you more about him in just a second. And the keynote speaker is Beatles expert and general god of all. Mark Lewison. Hashtag Lewis and his God. Yes! yes. We're so excited. The night that the album is officially released, there's going to be a midnight listening party. Who wouldn't want to have a midnight listening party of the White Album reissue with Mark Lewison? Oh my God. It's heaven. And we're going to be there. Yeah, we're going to be there. So, so exciting. So if you want to come, and why wouldn't you? This is like 75 sessions with almost every Beatles author. I Pretty much everybody who was anybody is going to be there. Yeah. Talking about anything and everything to do with the White Album. Head over to monmouth.edu. That's M-O-N-M-O-U-T-H dot E-D-U slash the White Album. Put some hyphens in between. So it's the hyphen white hyphen album. Get your tickets. See the schedule. Yeah. I mean, if Lewison doesn't sell you, I don't I don't know what to tell you. Well, this might. If Lewison doesn't sell you, maybe another guest who's appearing there will. Rob Sheffield author of our next Beatles book club selection, Dreaming the Beatles, the love story of one band and the whole world. So he'll be there too. And if you want to read along with us and maybe come to the convention and then maybe see him and talk to him with us, that would be awesome. Yeah, definitely. He's been one of my favorite writers for a long, long time, reading his stuff in Rolling Stone. It, for a long time, I think I said this last time, he was the only reason I still subscribe to Rolling Stone. But this is, again, a collection of essays telling the story of what this ubiquitous band means to a generation who grew up with the Beatles' music on their parents' stereos and their faces on T-shirts. So basically, 
kind of a second generation fan experience, which we obviously love very much. Yeah, and it's great. It's broken up into 26 short essays about different aspects of the Beatles and their music and their effect on the fandom. It's really cool. So read along with us. We're going to be doing a special Beatles book club episode like we did for the last one, and it'll be out probably mid-November. Definitely start reading along with us. Um, You can obviously get it on Amazon or wherever you get books, the library, and I think you can also download for Kindle, uh, Audible, all that good stuff. For our feature today in our episode, we are so excited to welcome Ken Womack. He is the Dean of the Wayne D. McMurray School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Monmouth University in New Jersey. Uh, He's also a professor of English there. Um, He's a world-renowned authority on the Beatles and their enduring cultural influence, along with a prolific Beatles author. And his latest book project involves a two-volume full-length biography devoted to famed Beatles producer Sir George Martin. Uh, Published in 2017, the first book in the series is entitled Maximum Volume, Life of Beatles producer George Martin, The Early Years, 1926 to 1966. The second volume, Sound Pictures, The Life of Beatles producer George Martin, The Later Years, 1966 to 2016, was just published last month. Ken is also the author of three award-winning novels, including John Doe No. 2 in the Dreamland Motel, The Restaurant at the End of the World, and Playing the Angel. His nonfiction work spans beyond the Beatles, ranging from literary criticism to histories of the Houston Astrodome and the popular and innovative Northeastern convenience store chain, Sheets. Which, I gotta say, living in LA, I miss Sheets coffee so bad. So welcome, Ken, and thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm really glad to be on this show above all others. Thanks. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Glad to have you. So um, let's get into a little bit about you first. Um, What led you to your interest in writing about the Beatles and about George Martin in particular? Well, my story is a pretty lame one, but I will tell you and your (laughs) listeners about it. Um, It was around 1977. I was 11 years old, and... The Beatles cartoons came on TV. They preempted my favorite TV show, which was called The New Zoo Review, which was fabulous because it had live humans with uh, these giant people in giant animal costumes. And uh, they sang and danced, and suddenly they were replaced by these guys I'd never heard of before. And uh, at first, of course, I I was pretty disgusted because I loved The New Zoo Review. And uh, not soon after that, I discovered that I loved the Beatles, and I'd heard these songs uh, probably intermittently over the years, and I couldn't believe that I'd been missing out. So what attracted you to writing about George Martin? (laughs) Well, I I started writing about the Beatles generally many years ago after I earned tenure, which would have been about 2002, and uh, I was drafted into university administration, and I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do all of this extra work, I'm going to write about what I want to write about. My area is 20th century British literature. But you know what? I think we all three would agree that the Beatles are also too 20th century British literature. Uh, So that's what... (laughs) So that's what drew me into that story. I mean, they're they're uniquely literary, uh, even in sound. I came around to George, probably belatedly, because by the time I started writing this series of books, he was already uh, very incapacitated by his deafness. And also, Mm. he'd had a long running battle with cancer. And uh, my timing was as bad as it could get, quite frankly. But I came around to the story because I thought, who was in the best position to understand this artistic legacy that we call the Beatles than George Martin? He was the guy who was often their primary, secondary, at worst tertiary audience for all of these great songs. He was the one 
who was there from the beginning until the end and, and the keeper of their legacy in later years. Um, and my whole question driving through these books was, what was it like to be that guy and, and what made him tick? Interesting. And I was just looking through George's book, All You Need Is Ears, which I believe is published in 1979. And I found this great quote, rediscovered this great quote from George on his producing. Um, and he said, I am in no way a typical record producer. I am a jack of all trades and master of none. And it is fortunate for me that I found a line of business which accepts versatility rather than genius. And he as a producer was really versatile. You know, can you talk a little bit about how he started out doing comedy records and kind of producing these oddball artists and how that sort of led him to the Beatles? You bet. Uh, and that quote that you you just isolated is really important because it demonstrates really the veritable truth about George. He never took credit for being this great techie. Um, he was no Jeff Emmerich behind the boards. He also uh, would never have claimed to be this master hit maker. Brian Epstein tried to make him believe that he was, but he knew better. And for a long time, at least, as, as you just mentioned, he worked with a lot of oddball artists. Um, and in fact, you could argue that he would do that for the remainder of his life, too. Um, he, he was bored very easily, and so he was attracted to all different kinds of sound and music and words. He came to the oddball artist, though, in a very specific way. In the mid-1950s, when he becomes head of uh, Parlophone Records as the youngest label head, at least at that time in the history of EMI as a record conglomerate, he really needed to find a way to save the company. And... Comedy records came to him in a variety of ways, and really they were his ticket to, um, almost said his ticket to ride, but it was his <laughs> ticket to survival in terms of making the label subsist into the future. When he took over for Oscar Preuss, Preuss said to him, you know, you'll be lucky if this thing makes it much longer. They have plans to put this label in mothballs. But George really saves it on the back of comedy, which was relatively inexpensive as opposed to musicians easier in some senses to make. You could work through it quickly and do a lot of improv work in the studio. George wasn't a great improviser, but he certainly worked very well with people like Peter Sellers, especially, who would come in and have these madcap ideas that could just go to all sorts of fanciful places. I think one thing I love about George is the dichotomy between the way he appears and his very strange mind. You know, he was, like you said, he's an oddball. He really liked strange comedy, loved the goons. I think that's probably why he clicked with the Beatles so early on. So he he was up for almost anything and he was very creative. But going further than that, what would you say made the collaboration between George Martin and the Beatles so unique? Well, uh, there's a lot there that you just offered. <laughs> um, and, and no, it's good, though. Uh, and, and I think your first observation, and it's if there's a failing in my book, and my publisher would kill me for saying this, because I don't think we're supposed to speculate on those things, <laughs> it's that I didn't dig deep enough or wasn't able to, given the available evidence, into the dichotomy of him as this outwardly clever, amenable, amiable guy. He played that person very well and sort of the darker places that he would go as a person. And I think a lot of those stories probably died with him. So we're really left with the amiable guy who's a lot of fun, even in print, uh, you know, as you noted earlier. Um, as far as working with the Beatles, what made them so effective with him and why they were a great pairing, and, and you almost have to throw Brian into this too, is that they're all coming at this industry sideways. All George knows is that he wants to be a success and he wants a fireproof rock act, a beat band, rather he would have called them. 
Um, he wanted to be like Nori Paramore, who was head of Columbia Label uh, in the early 1960s, late 1950s even. Nori was scoring hit after hit after hit with Cliff Richard, and that's what George Martin wanted. He wanted a jag. He wanted this fantastic lifestyle. That really was his goal. It wasn't happening for him, quite frankly, until the Beatles and Brian Epstein come to him. And that's when all of them are able to, I guess our current term for this is disrupt uh, the industry. They're all united by this sense of outsiderness. Brian's an outsider. Uh, Brian Epstein was, uh, you know, a pretend manager, right? He'd failed at everything he'd ever done. He failed at the uh, military. He failed at RADA. He failed at the furniture store business. But finally, he made the record store work, and he's going to try this thing called managing. Um, and within a month after meeting them, just over a month, he has landed them uh, an audition with DECA, and not too long after that, a contract with EMI. George is just as much of an outsider. He's this posh-sounding gentleman who's really from the depths of the lower classes, who's pretending uh, because he's a social climber. Uh, he is really a classical guy, pretending to be an A&R head coon producer. Uh, and then you have the Beatles, who are from Liverpool. <laughs> and, you know, nobody has any interest in seeing them succeed outside of Brian for the longest time. So they're all coming at this industry in a very sideways manner. And once they realize it and they get together and they, they unite their forces, they really become something different to be reckoned with in that industry. One thing that I think is really interesting about them coming together is that it sort of happened in a really serendipitous, almost like a domino fall, because the Beatles, right before they met Brian, they were kind of talking about breaking up because they weren't really going anywhere. They weren't really doing anything. They were sort of at a crossroads. And then, you know, when Brian comes into the picture, goes to see all these labels, gets turned down, um, finally gets the suggestion to see George Martin at Parlophone, you know, EMI at the EMI studios. And that's sort of their last chance there too. You know, it was by luck, by seren you know, serendipitous luck that George sort of said, quote unquote, he would listen to anything and give anything a try. Yeah, yeah, he would. But, you know, as you know, and, and we owe Mark Lewison such a debt for carrying out his assiduous research and really meeting with some of the witnesses quite a long time ago at this point, shortly before they died, people like uh, Sid Coleman and Ken Bennett at, at uh, Ardmore and Beechwood. We wouldn't understand the Beatles story in the way that we do now, if not for those interviews. And, you know, you're absolutely right. There are a number of dominoes that have to fall a certain way. But for the longest time, George's only plan with the Beatles was to record six sides and get them out of his life. Uh, he saw nothing in them. He was willing to listen to them exactly as you said. Right. I but, think their uh, initial you know, contract was, what, two singles a year? That was all that was promised? Well, yeah, it was, it was literally six sides. So he knew that he could count off the record sides until he'd be done with them. And, you know, there was no fear for him in that. Uh, he didn't expect them to succeed. And again, we owe Mark for this, too. By the time that George does come around, there's a very fateful meeting in November 1962 where George and Brian get together with the Beatles. It's not a recording session. It was a pure business meeting. And that's that first moment when they decide, you know what, we're going to plot out a future together. So there's suddenly this, this really great moment of intentionality where George Martin says, you know, damn it all, I'm going to throw my lot in with these guys. Well, thank God he did, right? <laughs> oh, I think so, too. Yeah. You know, as far as his innovations, his vision with the Beatles, you know, I love some of the different 
things you always hear about that are credited to George Martin, like, you know, he was very influential and sort of directed, like, which song came first in the album, which song ended the album, or the sides, rather. Um, what are some of the main keystones, I guess, that are hallmarks of George Martin's work with the Beatles that maybe, you know, if you listen close enough or, you know, something that you've heard a thousand times and you could say, oh, you know, thanks, George Martin, for that. Oh, there are so many. Uh, but I think the most important one in George valued this above all, and that was his ability to provide them with what they called in the industry, at least at that time, head arrangement, right? His biggest strength, he would tell you, um, is the ability to arrange a song, to put its component parts together in a way that would be perhaps uh, a commercial success. So the classic examples, Can't Buy Me Love, where he talks them into starting the song with the chorus, right? For George, head arrangement was so very important because you only have a few moments um, after a song enters your, you know, your sonic solar system to like it or dislike it, and you're going to move on. And of course, we're worse now <laughs> than we ever were in George's time. So head arrangement to him was really his greatest skill, and he would use that skill through the balance of their career. Another great example I was thinking about just this weekend I was listening to uh, the great new remixes, right, from the White Album. And yeah, they're Dear amazing. Prudence so is the one that, yeah, Dear Prudence is just blowing me away. And, and the sound of, of that recording. And, and Giles Martin deserves a lot of credit. It's just a beautiful remix. Um, and it's, I, when we say remix, it's a very light touch. It's not something that he's, uh, he's taken a heavy hand with. But one of the things you hear are these careful little moments throughout the song where George has put, what may seem like subtle touches, including a moment where he uses his famous Verispeed technique, the wind-up piano, just to give it a little bit more power as they build up to that great crescendo. Of course, when we think of the wind-up piano, we think probably more astutely of uh, the In My Life example, right? right, from Rubber Soul, where mm -hmm. he takes a slow, you know, he records at half speed and plays back at full speed, and you get this wonderful piano solo that sounds like a harpsichord. And George loved that technique because... To his mind, it allowed you to just have a way of doing something that would make you sound really talented. And it was a great parlor trick, and he loved to talk about it. Yeah, he loved to talk about that um, with Billy J. Kramer, too. He talked about how he double-tracked <laughs> Billy's voice and then put the piano behind it to make it sound better. <laughs> oh, God. And, you know, I was eating breakfast with him at Beatles Fest in Chicago, <laughs> and we were talking about George Martin. And... Um, and I had volume two out and, and we were looking at it together and he was sitting there with me. And uh, he said, you know, um, that George Martin, I could never really get over the fact that he was always trying to get me to do things, you know, with my voice that I didn't understand. And I, of course, being polite and he is my elder, <laughs> I held back on saying, well, Billy J, you know, he really disliked your voice <laughs> quite considerably <laughs> and would go out of his way to hide it and disguise it. So if, if Billy J is one of your listeners, and who wouldn't be one of your listeners? Billy J, I just couldn't say it in front of you, but uh, we, we love you probably more than George did. Oh, we love Billy. We he's, a, he's a pal. Um, if he's a listener, then he knows now. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I love, uh, and George is very forthcoming with that, you know, um, his, his tricks and techniques, especially with the piano. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think the Beatles would have been like if they hadn't been signed but hadn't been with George Martin? Um, I don't think we'd know about them. You know, and I don't just say that because I guess George is my guy right now, right? I, I say that because I think they would have been signed by somebody like Mike Smith, who was the fellow at DECA, 
who was sort of urging them along, the one who gave them the thumbs up when they left on January 1st, 1960, said, and to said, you guys should record. You know, that it would have been somebody younger and probably uh, more in sync with the industry. He would have expected them to come in. Uh, he probably would have been a he. <laughs> he would have expected them to come in and play, you know, have their songs ready for a 90-minute session and get out. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's, that situation would have, would have fit them very well. You know, they needed somebody that they could respect in a mighty big way, but also talk up to, as John Lennon famously does when he tells them why they don't want to do, how do you do it, right? Um, you know, so he was the perfect guy for them to give them the space to, to grow in the studio. Without that space, I don't think we know them as we do, and, and possibly not even at all. Um, I don't know that they would have evolved because they needed that time and space to grow, and George Martin was willing to do what it took to get that for them. Yeah, the frustration probably would have been too much for them after a little bit. Well, and it was an industry that didn't expect beat bands or rock stars, as we might think of them now, as having a future. You know, you you did it for a couple of years. Maybe you had a hit, maybe you didn't. And then you went and, you know, sold shoes. Yeah. <laughs> or cut hair, a.k.a. Ringo. Or, Ringo's yeah. ambition. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, Ken, would you say that, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but would you say that George is your fifth Beatle? Oh, he, there are times when he's the fourth Beatle or the second Beatle. You know, it depends on the the person's level of investiture at the time. There are moments uh, in the later years where he's arguably more invested than some of the bandmates. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think he is that guy. I would even expand that group. You know, you've got the four Beatles themselves. The other, the, the four people they needed in that that entourage of theirs to make things really work included, obviously, Brian. Uh, George and um, Neil and Mal. Those guys were willing to take a lot of guff and be in their inner circle for a long time. And, you know, when you look at them, while Mal was writing some kind of book when he, he died in his untimely death in 1976, Neil never talked, right? They needed folks like that who were very, very loyal to them. And while George wrote his books, he was very loyal to their legacy. I pointedly in volume too, with the word friend. That was what he was first and foremost to them, was really their most steadfast and devoted friend. It's funny, we were talking earlier in our episode about the famous 24-hour recording session uh, where John and Paul worked with George um, and Ken Scott to finish up the White Album. Meanwhile, Ringo was off on vacation, George went to Los Angeles, so I could definitely see George Martin kind of coming up into like third Beatle position with that. <laughs> he probably was. And by the way, that session and some of his work at the time really call into question his talking points in later years about how it should have been a single album. I, I find that to be one of the unfortunate aspects of all of these folks who are insiders living so long and, and really getting their talking points down. I can't believe that's what George really felt at the time. Right. And to hear, I know that you were at uh, Giles Martin's listening session in New York. I was at his listening session in L.A. And to hear him talk about his father's thoughts on the White Album, it was clear through Giles that George was not a fan. He may not have been, right? I mean, he had a pretty miserable experience uh, for a good bit of it. You know, we know this historically. He felt left out during some parts of it. At other parts, he was involved in some of the shouting matches. But, you know, the 
I guess the volumes that George would write after, you know, during his life rather speak volumes, right? Because they don't mention the White Album, um, with the exception right. of, of, you know, perhaps the Hey Jude single, which happens contemporaneously. Otherwise, it sure is quiet. What do you think we missed out by his lack of involvement in the White Album or his lesser involvement? I don't think we missed out on anything, really. Uh, it's it's such an intentional record, the way they work on the Easter tapes in advance. I feel like that we really, we got the finest product they were going to provide. It's such a glorious, powerful, artistic statement of what was going on 50 years ago, both with them as artists and out in the world that wasn't too far from the studio, right? So I don't know that it, it would be a much different record. His involvement, to me, is significant, and this is why, personally, I wish he hadn't marginalized his experience on the White Album and, and all of his works. What he does for songs like Glass Onion or Mother Nature's Son or that crazy, fantastic little wind-up piano solo on Rocky Raccoon, those little touches make the record in a lot of ways. Or, you know, the, the beefy saxes on Savoy Truffle. George's orchestrations, while not as profuse, are just magic. Pretty impressive just how open he was to experimentation. What do you think some of George Martin's lasting impacts on music production are? Wow. Um, in a technical sense, I don't think he has any. <laughs> uh, I mean, his he had a, a very good business sense in the sense that he wanted, you know, to steal a phrase, maximum volume, right? He wanted lots of music as loudly as possible. As far as uh, his legacy, I think his legacy is in his relationship with the band and how artists and their producers can work together like great actors and a director to create something really special. And uh, George was integral to that process. I, I think we owe him a great debt. We would not be listening to these records. You know, we're all students of music of the 60s, right? The Beatles just sound better. I mean, they sound better because they're better compositions and they're, they're cleverer and finer musicians in most cases, but they also just sound better. And George would not let a Beatles album out of his sight or his hearing range, I guess, without really ensuring that it was good to go and that it was something that would have fidelity that would last well into the into the future. And they have. Right. And one of the things that's interesting, not just about the Beatles, but a lot of 60s artists in general is, you know, you see the Beatles using George Martin the whole way through. You know, today, not so much. There are some, you know, people who say, for example, Mark Bronson, he has a staple of artists that he works with, among others. But, you know, this is really kind of a symptomatic thing of the 60s where you see these artists and they go hand in hand with a certain producer for most of their careers, if not the whole the whole span. Yes. And, and part of that is, you know, as you recall, part of what's going on there is that producers were really A&R heads, right? People who ran artisan repertoire and they were even seen as the supervisors of the band. You know, their their connected tissue with the record company in terms of non-contractual matters. And George was built out of that mold where you supervised artists and you made sure that they were getting material, you know, routined, as he would say, and ready for release. So that was his job. And he took it really seriously. He was their supervisor for a long time. And isn't it wonderful uh, in that last moment when, when they bring him back for Abbey Road, what they really need is their supervisor again, you know, somebody to come in and give them some structure. Right. And going hand in hand with George Martin, obviously, we've got to talk about Jeff Emmerich, who sadly passed away earlier this month. And, you know, he was a brilliant engineer. He contributed so much 
and as far as effects, I mean, there's times when George Martin said, you know, I don't want the boys to have to worry about this. Jeff, you figure it out. And he was also somewhat of a controversial figure. You know, you and I were both in Chicago for the Fest for Beatles fans. He was a guest. Lots of buzz around that. I'm sure we could talk forever about Jeff's contributions, but can you just give us an overview of, of his impact on the Beatles and how it was different from George Martin's? Well, he could not have come along at a, at a better time, quite frankly. You know, he comes along when George needs him the most. It's after George has gone into business for himself. You know, he's no longer in the connective tissues of EMI in the same way. Jeff is young. He has long been, by that point in 1966, uh, bucking the system and tired of, you know, following all the rules about how many inches a mic should be away from an amplifier and all of that sort of business. So it was nice to get a different kind of viewpoint. And for George, Jeff was just perfect. George may have great ideas. The Beatles would have outlandish ideas at times. George was getting to the point where he could not have continued to fulfill them. So when it came time for John Lennon's voice to sound like, you know, the the Dalai Lama on a distant mountaintop, the guy he needed to help get there was uh, was definitely our friend Jeff Emmerich. Jeff Emmerich was going to be a guest at this International White Album Symposium next month that you've put together and are organizing. Can you tell us a little bit about the event, how it came about? Well, I can. And, you know, first I should just note, Jeff was really looking forward to it. He was excited about being at a college and um, getting to meet students and be a part of something like this. So at first he was a little nervous because it was the White Album and it's no secret that he didn't have a great experience on that record. He even quit right. in July 1968. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had really come around to wanting to be a part of things. We were talking about other events he could do in the area. And it just, um, it's so sad because he was really, as we saw in Chicago, really just starting to come out of his shell. He'd been kind of quiet in recent years. And I, I think he still had a lot to contribute, of course. <laughs> Um, He wasn't a fan of of remixes or the Love Project and and those sorts of things. But uh, uh, he certainly was, uh, in his own right, um, uh, just a a great thinker and speaker about the Beatles' achievement, which is what we're going to be doing on the Jersey Shore, of course, in November. It'll be held, our conference, from November 8th to 11th, um, and we'll be celebrating the White Album, but really we'll be celebrating the whole achievement. While we no longer have benefit of Jeff, we have... Uh, Mark Lewison will be giving a number of talks throughout the conference. Chris Thomas is a great find. Chris will be joining us and, of course, talking about his experience as a very, very young producer and George Martin's protege on the record and uh, his experiences during those times. Uh, Apple U.S. Apple President Ken Mansfield will be on hand, so that'll be spectacular. And, of course, the big backdrop to this whole business is this great new remix that is going to be released on November 9th, and we will be playing it in its entirety at midnight that uh, at the end of that day, or rather, the day before. Whenever November 8th turns into November 9th, we'll be there. In any event, we'll be playing it on our fabulous sound system and our Pollock Theater. My friends and, and yours, uh, Bruce Pfizer and Scott Fryman, will be helping to, uh, to moderate that special session. We'll have lots of coffee on hand. And the whole thing should be, if we hit it right, a great joy. We sh- we sure have a lot of fun people and a lot of fun interactive experiences along the way. We'll have a room that is just devoted to understanding the recordings where we'll have um, some really great specialists demonstrate how the tracks were made. So that'll be a lot of fun. And we'll also have a music demo room where people will play various parts of, of the album on their guitars and on piano to demonstrate how some of the tracks were composed and played. So 
it really should be a lot of fun. That sounds fantastic. I cannot wait. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, I seriously, I'm you know coming from LA. Can't wait. It'll be great to be among you know some best guests, but also obviously looking forward to seeing Mark Lewison um, and hearing him. He's obviously he's like our hero. Obviously, I think he's everybody's hero in this community. So well. <laughs> Well, he should be, you know, in a way we would not be engaging in this kind of learned analysis if it weren't for him. Um, if he had not, uh, you, you know, I think it's silly to think that if he had not uh, cataloged and described the recordings as he did in the 1980s, that somebody else would have necessarily come along. Um, I don't know that that's true, because what we did see uh, is that EMI and Apple Corps have retracted, rather contracted, uh, people's access to a lot of these materials. So I think what Mark did um, was quite important and, and very timely because it gave us that primary source material to be able to comment and think about these recordings. You know, until then, we simply did not have even remotely that level of information available. Um, and, you know, his new books, a uh, series of books, which he's one book into with Tune In, I've told him this to his face. You know, he was courageous to write, to begin writing these books because a lot of people simply wouldn't. They would have protected their position with, you know, the Beatles and being an insider. Instead, Mark, uh, because he is a person of great integrity and fortitude, he said, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. And because of that, not only are we learning new revelations, but we're starting to get this story right before all of the witnesses have passed on. Yeah, and tune in is such a revelation. I actually just got a copy of the UK version, the special, the like thousand page special edition, and I'm, you know, piecemeal reading it, <laughs> really enjoying it. Um, but you know, I have to admit, I sort of I love Mark Lewison, but I kind of wish he weren't coming to the symposium so he could just stay home and work on the next volume. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're not the first person who will tell him that. <laughs> um, I'll let him you know. know I... <laughs> I've told him before, I, you know, I hope you're taking care of yourself and eating right because a lot of people are counting on you, you know, <laughs> to, to get to the end, to get to the end of this story, which I now understand is going to be in, in 1974 when the Beatles partnership ends. So, which makes sense. That's, mm. that's really where the story stops as far as, as far as they're concerned, which means it must end with May Pang uh, in, at the end of 1974 in the Polynesian village at Walt Disney World, if I remember correctly. That's where most stories end. I think. It really does. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's where I want my story to end. Really, with some kind of pretend <laughs> luau and the Winnie, Winnie the Pooh parade and all that good stuff. That's amazing. I've actually <laughs> oh. stayed there, so now I feel really privileged. You know what? That's a, that would be a great place. We're going to work on this together, team. Oh, yes. I, yes, yes. I just, hear I just it? locked yep. minds with you, yep. Ken. Yeah. yeah. Pick it up with your foot down. We are going to have to... Yeah, it's going to have to be uh, the, the location of a Beatles event in 2024 is going to have to be at the Polynesian Resort. I will wear a lay for that. Well, now you're on record saying that. This is on the record. so. Okay, we're, we're doing it. But you know what? I bet you May Pang would happily join us and, uh, and go 100%. back. and. Yeah, so we're going to make this happen. I love this it. is great. Book your trip now, Walt Disney World 2024. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to book a block of rooms when we yes. get off this call. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Well, Ken, thank you so much for being part of our episode and talking to us about George and Jeff and all the recording process and magic that happened. Um, how can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Ah, well, they can go to kennethwomack.com. 
or email me. I am all over that internet, and I'm glad to, <laughs> to talk to anybody. Not in a bad way. I'm on the internet in a good way, and I'm happy to talk to folks, and uh, I love hearing their stories and love hearing why they love the Beatles, because it is a, it's a great story that unites us all. I always say, you know, if somebody doesn't like the Beatles, I'm afraid of them. You know, it's like not liking Christmas or children or something. <laughs> <laughs> so fun. We'll see you next month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excited. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. You bet. And I'll have my mouse ears on in, uh, in honor of 2024. Fabulous. Yes. And we end as always with our favorite beetle related thing of the week. Allison, what are you obsessed with this week? Well, mine is hot off the presses Ooh. because we're recording this Sunday. Uh, woke up this morning and uh, checked my Instagram and see that Paul posted on his Insta story and a little video of him doing the hashtag COTM challenge, <laughs> which if you're not familiar, uh, in Paul's videos, he released three videos for Come On To Me from Egypt Station, and they feature three different people dancing along, and they're all they're all very entertaining, and they're all professionally done. However, he also put the call out to his own fans to do their own video for Come On To Me, and I've seen a couple of them cropping up on Instagram of people dancing in the New York subway. I saw one girl from Brazil doing it kind of in public. And today, Paul released his own. It's on YouTube. We're going to share it on our social media right now so you can take a look at it. But yeah, it's him. I think at one point, he's you know dancing along to his own song, singing along, lip syncing, and he dabs. I'm going to shout out like his grandchildren who probably taught him that. But it's really entertaining. It's, it's fun to see Paul having fun with it. And shout out to his social media team, too, because they're killing it. His marketing team coming up with some really fun stuff. But just to see Paul dancing... Like, what a way to wake up on a Sunday morning. Like, thanks, Paul. That made my day. Paul is your dad or uncle who got a little too drunk at your wedding and started dancing the dab that he saw his kids do somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then he starts doing the Macarena because he doesn't know what year it is. (laughs) I love you, Paul. I love you, Paul. He he starts yelling at the DJ, Cupid Shuffle then. Cupid Shuffle. Oh, I love, I love Paul. I think he's hilarious. And he just, he's just the light of our lives at the moment. And if you decide you're going to join the hashtag COTM challenge, let us know. Send us the video. We will post it. We will share it. We will 100%. Like, mention us, add us, send it to us somehow. We'll post that shit because that's awesome. And maybe if we are lucky and we can get some cooperation, maybe we can get some people at the White Album Symposium to join in with us and do one with, like, famous Beatles authors. I would love that. My obsession this week is an Instagram page that my fiance showed me the other day. It's called Beatles Curiosities. And they're so cool. They're just little odd facts about the Beatles. So they'll crop up. And a lot of them I didn't know. So some of them are are stats, like as of 2012, the Beatles have sold over 2 billion albums. But then they're just little, some of them are like little music things that you'd never really think about. Like in the fourth verse of Oh Darling, many people believe that Paul says, Oh Johnny, instead of Oh Darling. I never heard that. I never thought about that. That sounds like some McLennan shit, though. Maybe that one is McLennan. I don't know. (laughs) I, I think these are really cool. They pop up in my feed. They have this little like shaded box around them. And so they're, they're really noticeable. 
And I think they're fun. I found a couple of things in there that I never knew. I never thought about. Like I never even thought that I wanted to to know. But yeah, I think it's they really interesting. Get into, like the minutia. It's really interesting. Yeah, like John Lennon's half brother is a professor of physical chemistry. Okay, I didn't really ever think about that or think about wanting to know that. But I think that's really cool. Like every little bit of information that you don't know augments your Beatles history. So I think it's cool and it's kind of a nice break from all the other things I see in my Instagram feed. Here's a nice one. Sometimes John would call Paul Bunny. I saw that one. And actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I wanted to ask Jude Kessler, who is our last guest, if that was true. Um, I had it written down. I totally forgot. But let's let's try to verify that when we're at the White Album Symposium, because I want to know the story of that. I've never heard that before. Have you? No, I haven't. That's so interesting. I wonder why. I don't know. <laughs> oh, maybe we can ask Mark Lewison. Let's ask Mark Lewison. OK, we're going to ask Mark Lewison about that because uh, that needs a story. To explain it. Pressing sure. questions. Very pressing. We love that. We'll repost some cool facts on our Insta and give them a shout out because they are really doing the Lord's work in a big way. Did you know John Lennon loved to play Monopoly? I didn't. No, but I have a picture of George playing Monopoly from one of my team eggs. So oh, they probably played together. This is amazing. We could just do a whole podcast of just reading these Beatles curiosities. Maybe next week. Oh, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, <laughs> speaking of next week, thanks for listening to, yeah. to Because the Beatles. As always, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening right now. Stream us on Spotify and give us a rating or review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be sharing and posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. See you next time. Right, bye. Bye. 